Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. And James. Hi. On this week's episode, we go on an underwater safari and look at Shazam for identifying dolphins, dog cloning, bomb defect bomb-detecting dolphins, the transfer of cells from siblings in dogs, and giant orchids. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is the wonderful, sunny, South California coast. Uh, in particular, um, Santa Barbara, uh, where the University of California is based. And we're going to be talking about that because they've been having some unusual things washing up on their shores recently. And uh, that will be the topic of our first story, and that's giant oarfish. So, Lauren, what is a giant oarfish? Well, Justin, a giant oarfish, aka the king of herrings, can also be said to be the source of all sea serpent sightings. But but what what is it? <laughs> it's actually a giant fish, and it look the name a giant the giant oarfish comes from the fact that it looks like a giant oar. Or the fact that it's got these dorsal fins that kind of look like oars and can also be said to look like a crown, hence the name King of the Herrings. And it's about, what, um, 15 feet or 8 metres long? Actually, the longest one that they've found is, like, massive and they keep washing up on our shores. I believe there was two that just washed up in South California? Yeah, so two of these giant oarfish have just washed up on the beaches in South California. Giant oarfish are commonly found in the deep layers of the ocean. They look quite much like a sea monster. Uh, They have often been found up to 23 feet, some of the recent ones, uh, which is about 7 metres in length. And they are really, really long, skinny, snake-like looking fish that are very bony and have a very unusual head, which is pretty common to most of these deep sea creatures. This basically seems like a Pokemon. I mean, why haven't we heard about this before? Well, we didn't really know it existed until we started really deep sea trawling and casting our nets into the ocean at really deep and odd locations that we'd never fished before. And people pulled up these giant fish. They're like, why did we catch a sea monster? And we slowly realized we thought they were rare and we thought they were old dinosaur-based fish. And it turns out, no, actually, they're reasonably common. We just have never really seen them before. And yet, two have washed up recently in October on... The beaches? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. They're not really sure in South California what's actually happening because um, these are deep sea fish and they've been found on islands and on the coast in South California, which is quite strange considering that it's a very large distance from where they normally are. So were these fish found alive? No, unfortunately these fish were found dead. So what they suspect is that they died in the deep ocean currents and have been dragged along the Pacific currents to the beaches in California, which would make a lot of sense. And one of the interesting things that they've found is when they've cut open and started to dissect these giant sea serpents, they found them actually teeming with life still. All different kinds of bacteria, tapeworms and other deep sea creatures are inside, have been inside of these giant fish. Living there, thriving, whilst it travels from wherever it died in the deep sea trenches to the beach. Were these giant fish eating things that contain these parasites? Yeah, and that's what it's suspected, that they were often eating um, or consuming the eggs that can grew into these parasites. Now, the oarfish themselves typically eat krill, which seems innocuous enough. Um, but it, the fact that these 
these tapeworms have been found inside would suggest that it's also managed to sweep up a few other things inside it. Now, um, there's some interesting facts that have been put together um, about the giant oarfish, which are very entertaining. So, Lauren, what are some of these entertaining facts about these giant oarfish? Well, Justin, I mean, I know you're a particular fan of fish. Um, if you would, by chance, like to taste some of this giant oarfish, it's actually been said to taste a bit like gelatinous goo. That, that, what, what, why would you eat this? How did they find that out? Well, it's actually because when the fishermen have accidentally pulled up these fish, and they're like, well, what is this thing? We can't sell it. We don't know what this is. Let's try eating it. Well, it's, well, it's the common human response to most things. Gelatinous goo. Well, that makes some sense. I mean, if you're at that deep level of the ocean, you need a lot of layers to actually compensate for the, for the pressure differences and also the coldness of the ocean. So that makes a bit of sense, but it's really odd that they don't have good flesh. That, that's weird. Well, the good thing is, although the fact we you could eat these fish, I wouldn't recommend it because apparently it doesn't taste that great. The fish themselves, as we talked before, only eat krill, and they're not actually that dangerous despite their massive size. That's good. It's glad to know that the sea serpents themselves weren't actually dangerous. I think the actual bigger danger is running into one of them. It's likely to do more damage to your boat than the fish could ever possibly do. Although if your boat is that deep in the ocean, you probably have other problems. That's, that's also very po- a good point, James. I, I, I'm glad you phrased that one. <laughs> so, um, have there been much cultural association with these giant orphans? I mean, aside from the sea monsters, does anyone else really have any myths or legend about them, Lauren? Japan has actually had um, a few myths and legends about these magical Pokemon. So they could be said to be the psychic type. Because these per- these oarfishes have actually said to forecast earthquakes. Wait, what? It turns out that in Japan they believed if um, many of these fish washed up on their shores that it would actually signal the coming of an earthquake. That that uh, That's very interesting. A bit of legend there. I mean, does this mean that an earthquake's coming to South California? Because they are in a fault zone, so that, that could be likely. Um, but it seems that some Japanese researchers have been digging into that. See if there's any like scientific basis to that myth. Yeah. So since these fish actually live in the deep ocean trenches along the ocean floor, um, they're more sensitive to the large fault movements, earthquakes that happen under the ocean and cause tsunamis, and uh, other earthquakes themselves were fault slips and tremor lines. So if the fish winds up dead through some sort of accident, um, catastrophic fault um, eruption or slipping on the ocean surface as they're right along that. Um, it makes more sense if a whole bunch died simultaneously um, that there would be some underwater event that's occurring that we can't see that's actually killing the fish. It could also be the release of uh, gases or um, the increasing of the acidity in the ocean from an ocean vent, um, venting a lot of magma or um, other gases into that area. So it's actually probably has some basis in fact. Not specifically earthquakes, just some undersea activity that we're not really privy of. So these giant oarfish that have been setting sail to surf on the Californian waters have been giving us a bit of insight into the deep sea life that occurs in our ocean trenches. Researchers have found an interesting way of identifying d- different dolphins. I'm sure you're all familiar with the music, music services like Shazam. Turns out that Shazam can be used with the correct database. The same mathematical analysis can then be used to work out which, what dolphin has said which sound, just purely based upon patterns that exist within their calls. So this is really cool. It's like picking up dolphins based on their signature sounds, like you would with a band, and say, well, this, this, this band you know, usually sounds like this because I've got this singer and this guitarist. And they're doing the same thing with the noises produced by a dolphin. 
Uh, and why that's really interesting is because we often just think of dolphins as making shrill clicks and whistles and weird noises, much like whales, and we never really pay much attention to them. Some people who talk to dolphins in the show, like in the show in the environments or in aquariums, will tell you that they make certain sounds for certain things, but this really gives you an insight into the dolphin language itself. Now, well, I don't know, Lauren, do you think about anything that you would want to do with talking to a dolphin? Uh, I would definitely like to find out their stories, how they're going, what's up, you know, how they're communicating with these other dolphins and things like that. Yeah, and that's what they've actually found that dolphins and whales use the ocean for as one big massive radio network that they transmit on. Which is really cool if you're a dolphin and want to tune into the latest frequencies, you can now use Shazam to identify your favourite dolphin artists. Now, um, if you're familiar with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you'll be aware that, of course, dolphins are most, the most uh, smartest and intelligent creatures on the planet. And, with the uh, exception of mice. Of course, with the exception of mice. And um, this will probably give us a bit of an insight into their language and communication, which shows again how intelligent these creatures are, and leads us one step closer to actually understanding what they're saying. So will this um, technology, will you eventually just be able to like stick your phone beneath the water and click Shazam and find out which dolphin's closest to you, or figure out what they're saying? Or... Well, that would be the next step of the analysis, because once you've identified a particular dolphin, the next hopeful step would be to identify certain patterns characteristics of phrases that might be common amongst dolphins. If dolphins start saying similar or making similar sounds in similar contexts, then it would suggest some form of language, which would be really interesting to start to decode and understand. Have we observed this before in dolphins? Well, there's a lot of work that goes into analysing whale song and dolphin song, and a lot of people have been trying to figure this out. And it's really interesting because there's the different species of whales, the different localizations or areas of whales and dolphins, and the large distances the sound travel over. So establishing a context for it is often really hard. And without that common context, decoding what they're saying is very difficult. Justin, you mentioned something about changing frequencies before. Yeah, so our oceans are terribly noisy. Um, think about all the sound that we're producing from our machines, our cars, our trucks, our planes. And, put it, and think about all the sound we're making underwater from not just the people on the beach surfing, but also from the massive ships that are traversing across the oceans. They make a lot of noise, and the ocean is a massive amplifier that carries that noise for thousands of kilometres. This is great, helps the whales communicate with each other over long distances, but it also means they're drowning out the noise with all these ships' engines. So much so that there is some legislation in certain areas, protected areas, to actually reduce ship noise to help the dolphins and sea creatures in the areas. Otherwise, the dolphins and sea creatures have to find different frequencies to communicate on than previously in order to get around all this high-pitched no- or low-pitched noise that the ships produce. So, language and communication is happening beneath the waves that we're not privy to, except for now when we can use our mobile phones and Shazam to find out which dolphin sang that song. You seem to do a study in two thousand back in the 1940s when they were busy depth-charging the crap <coughs> in the oceans. What effect that actually had on dolphins. <laughs> yeah, that would be really... It'd be interesting to get into the details of that because the, fre- the frequency difference, because most of, most of that song is fairly high, presumably even shifted high, because mm. you know, ships uh, tend to be fairly low frequency, fairly low frequency noises because yep. you know they're freaking gigantic. And there's a lot of really detailed signal analysis on ocean noise during the Cold War when everyone had submarines out in the trenches, and picking the crap out of each other, desperately trying to find out where another submarine was by listening to the ocean sounds. And that's where we got a lot of our ocean science from, is from the midst of the Cold War and the British, um, American and Soviet submarines that were trying to identify each other secretly. On the subject of the Cold War, 
Turns out that, in fact, German shepherds are not the only sort of animals used by the military. A certain group of American na naval personnel have a training school where young, dependable dolphins are encouraged to learn the skills to help detect mines and other explosives underwater and then sent out on their master's commands to investigate ships to see if they're about to explode. That, that's amazing. We have bomb-sniffing dolphins. Now, I know dolphins have really good noses, but I didn't know that we could use the same kind of technology underwater. And what's really interesting is that it, it's been rumoured, you know, that uh, we've, they, the Navy's trained dolphins to do this kind of stuff for ages. Some interesting facts about the actual extent of the Naval's dolphin program has come out recently, Lauren. So how, how, many, how many are we talking about here? We're talking like a couple of elite dolphins that they've trained, or is it a wider scale than that? I wish, Justin. It turns out the Navy actually had 80 bottlenose dolphins and 30 sea lions in their ranks, and they would deploy them from their base in San Diego. Deploy them to do what, though? What would what they actually asking them to do? What would the dolphins do to find the mines? Would they... Would they find the mine and then be like, okay, come back like Flipper and communicate in a series of chirps and whistles that obviously everybody would understand? Well, we do have that Shazam program working out, so eventually in the future, maybe that would have happened. But it turns out what they didn't say is they would, um, they would deploy the animals and they would go and sweep and detect the mines. When they did find them, um, they were trained to drop a transponder nearby. So that was the original idea of what actually they used dolphins for. And, and then in recent years, it's shown that they've actually started to get them to be involved in disabling and recovering the disabled mines. And also laying them, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> and patrolling the waters for enemy divers. This, this is incredible. Like, they've trained the dolphins to, when they find a live mine, attach a small explosive and then swim away. This is crazy. So what they use is their echolocation which is basically a system of sonar uh, to identify objects. And very similar, we actually mimic this with our submarines. Good thing they didn't have sonar-triggered mines. That, that, that was very true. Um, now, there's actually even some South American dolphins, because I can sense electricity in water, much in the same way that a shark uses uh, electroconductivity in its skin to pick up the uh, pulse and the, the pulses and the, the um, neuro signals of other creatures around it. Which is really, like, these are superpowers. These are basically dolphins with superpowers that they're turning into super soldiers. It's like, forget Captain America. Captain Dolphin is where it's at. So are we still using these super soldier dolphins? Well, fortunately... <laughs> Some research has been gone into, obviously, for animal cruelty purposes. Training up dolphins to swim into live mines is not an ideal thing to be doing. So, with the whole drone craze, people, we are now finally moving drones underwater and building essentially prosthetic dolphins to swim around and do the same functionality just without risking actual dolphins. So Justin's Captain Dolphin gets to retire in comfort without having his face blown off. And we, we build a new fleet of cheap minesweeper dolphin robots called Knife Fish. But what happened to the old dolphins? Well, I mean, they get to retire and no, they get to retire and enjoy, you know, I mean there'll be some adjustments, you know, the skills of planting explosives on mines and running away. It's really hard to make that adjustment to your normal life. You don't plant explosives on that beach ball at SeaWorld and run away. <laughs> but I'm sure they'll be able to adjust and the Navy will look after its veteran dolphin sold do dolphin seamen like the rest of their um, sea crews that they care for. Now, the, uh, there's actually making a whole bunch of other robots, including the Kingfish and the Sea Fox. So, basically, we're now having drone wars underwater as well as in the air. 
The next thing, clearly, is space. And uh, if we come across any stories relating biomimicry, animals in space, and robot drones in space, we will be sure to let you know. But now, rest easily knowing that dolphins will be safe from the explosive landmines. See you, mines. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We talked about how dolphins can be trained to detect bombs and how they're being replaced by robots and how dolphin song can be identified using Shazam-like technologies. We've also talked about giant oarfish and other mysterious sea creatures from the depths. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.